welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from 360 Learning, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm speaking with Donald Clark about the potential for AI in learning and development. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us. And thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. Donald, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, you know, the podcast is the, the thing of the day, which uh, I'm always delighted to give these. I prefer doing these than talks at conferences, to be honest, because I think there's more intimacy. You know, mm. you get more depth, I think. But let's see how it goes. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> uh, well, Donald, I want to speak with you about uh, AI, because I think we in L&D expect too little from it and too little from digital in general. So perhaps we should start by outlining what AI is and why it's important to be talking about it now. Yeah, well, of course, it's it's the technology of the age. You know, I've just finished a book on the history of learning technologies, right from uh, cave paintings onwards, as it were, the way in which, uh, you know, our early tools shaped our cognition. And then, of course, we have the Big Bang of writing, which is a learning technology that give us externalized things from our brains, give us cultural representation beyond that into printing, into computers and the internet. And now, at this moment in the history of our species, we have perhaps something that's more important than all of those. Because this is a form of technology that is not yet there, but looks as though it's heading in a direction which transcends our abilities or the abilities, certainly, of our brains and cognition. It already has in several areas. So this is a really important moment for the species. Forget L&D for a moment. I mean, training, <laughs> uh, does, it, does that matter? But it has huge implications for us as a species, huge implications for work and employment. Uh, huge implications for every area of human endeavor, research, science, solving climate change, so on and so forth. So to imagine that it has no impact on L&D is almost absurd. The, the idea yeah. is not having an impact on learning. And in actual fact, it's had a massive impact already. It's just L&D have not played any role in this. It's happening to L&D. So for 20 years, uh, you know, we've been using search, which is pure AI. It's based on a little Bayesian algorithm uh, by Page and Brain. And that's a primary form of, you know, we learn far more by looking things up on the internet than we do in formal courses. And there's this yeah. illusion that we, you people learn through courses. I mean, you know, that's true. They're, they're important. They matter. But like, this is a tiny sliver of the, of the pie chart. So for the last 20 years, we've been using AI, all of us, almost every day. Everything we do online is mediated by AI. All your social media is mediated by AI, everything you buy on Amazon, all that Netflix, Disney Channel, Prime, all mediated by AI, Uber, Uber Eats, all taxis, everything. And you mm. go, it's not having much effect, is it really? This AI is like, you go, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And that's because they don't they, they have a framework of how it works in courses. So there's this slight, I get the same question every time I give a presentation. Like, yeah, uh, it's just recommendation engines. Yeah, Google's just a recommendation engine, but you use it 20 times a day. I mean, you know, you have to, so you asked a very good question, what is AI? So let's go back to that. Sorry, I gave a, a big sort of uh, initial pedestal speech there. 
But it's important to, I think it is important to unpack the different, as many things AI. There's no formal mathematical definition of it, interestingly, but it's just smart yeah. software, first of all. I like to calm people down and say, this is just maths and software, you know, because it, it is competent, but without comprehension. That's the first thing yeah. to remember, that there is no self-consciousness or brain behind it. So don't anthropomorphize it. Don't think it's a person or an intelligence like us. It's not. So competence without comprehension is a good definition. And then there are various species of AI, of course. People forget, you know, we, you have some really naive commentary. You know, I saw one recently where I went around learning technologies. I couldn't find, I asked everybody, you know, I said, where's your machine learning? And nobody could tell me. You go, like, are you kidding me? <laughs> First of all, you don't use, you don't build machine learning, uh, you know, using AI. You know, nobody's going to build a search engine in an e-learning company at the cost of $3 billion, as Google did. So you, you're getting this obsessive you know, commentary by people who just want to pick holes in it. They don't really like tech. Yeah. They're not learning technologies, but they don't really like it, so they're trying to pick holes in it. In actual fact, AI sometimes doesn't involve machine learning at all. So you have symbolic AI, which is pure reasoning in maths. That's a, a big area in itself, which has no data or neural networks. You have the whole neural network thing, which has come of age recently, which is terribly important because it's been so potent and powerful. And then you have different types of applications. There are lots of ways of classifying AI. You have image recognition, for example. So my son has a degree in AI, and his specialist subject was image recognition, and he still has the top algorithm for recognizing apples on trees. Now, that seems trivial, but 80% of all fruit goes to waste. Either rots on the tree, falls to the ground, and it's not picked at the right time. So these are you know, a simple algorithm that does something like recognize, ah, it's a really tricky problem because there are bunches of apples and they're behind leaves and so on. Mm. If you can solve these problems, you solve world food problems, you've got a massive increase yeah. in productivity. And then there's face recognition, there's hundreds of applications of image recognition. But there's also the one that's perhaps more relevant for us in the learning sphere, and that is natural language processing, you know, is how we deal with language. And this pops out a language. So you can actually, in a, in a piece of AI now, type in a description like, I, I, I did one the other day, which I showed at a conference, a schnauzer, that's my dog is a schnauzer, a, a schnauzer bouncing on a platform, and it produced this beautiful image of a schnauzer bouncing on a trampoline. Now that was just yeah. from that little sentence, and the AI produced the graphic, freshly minted. So there's lots of crossover here. There are many, many other areas, sexual selection of algorithms, all sorts of, it's a complicated day. Uh, a complicated map of different species of AI. And this is why people get shouldn't be criticizing the AI until they have some some idea of its variety. You know, it's quite a heterogeneous world, in fact. And there have been many massive advances here very recently. Another thing to remember has been around for a long time. The first algorithm is actually printed in Euclid's book, The Elements, in 300 BC. Mm. And we have 2,500 years of maths, really, you know, which is all the statistical theory, probability theory, algorithmy. You know, in the Middle Ages, the great Arab scholar gives us the word algorithm. People think this is all very mm. new, but a lot of it has been building on the maths that has come to us from the Greeks and Arabs and Indians onwards. Mm. So complex world. And I'd like to yeah. make it simple. But there is one simple way of summing all this up, though, I think, for L&D people, which I think helps as a, like, a bottleneck, you know which is often described as an idiot savant. In other words, it's very good at precision tasks, 
So, You're a bit like they can beat any of us at chess or poker or go, which is a, an unbelievably sophisticated game. We know it can beat us at all these things. It can unfold proteins, can do lots and lots of things that we cannot do. But it only yeah. does that thing, that one thing. And it doesn't even know when it's won. It might beat you at go, but it's not aware of the fact that it's won. It's just the execution of code. And so it's good at precision tasks, but it's not very good at you know more complex tasks. And mm. I always give the same example here as my dog. You just come in the door, and it, you know I have a uh, I have a Roomba that comes out and it goes all all of the room. It maps intelligently the bottom half of my house and picks up all the dust, plugs itself in when it runs out of juice. But it doesn't. You know, if my dog does a shit in the carpet, it will smear it mathematically in every corner <laughs> because it doesn't. You know, it doesn't know shit. It doesn't know anything in that sense. It only yeah. knows its task. And as long as we understand that, I think we can start to make progress. Yeah. Uh, which is really interesting because, as, uh, you know, if we're if we're thinking about uh, about AI in learning and development, and we start with dumb content, then there's a, there's a risk of uh, of AI just uh, spreading dumb shit around an organisation. But maybe that's maybe that's a different podcast uh, altogether. Um, <laughs> Donald, you mentioned there that uh, that uh, that AI is everywhere, uh, but it's mainly associated, as you said, in learning and development with content recommendations, which, in my view, is is a dumbed down version. Uh, of its uh, uh, of its potential, and you mentioned earlier as well that uh, that that um, it, it, it's almost going to change learning and development by by the consequence of it actually changing work. I see that that uh, that 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 it's changing the way that we work and are uh, are more effective at work. Is probably going to uh, have more of a, an implication on uh, uh, on learning and development than uh, than AI within it. But maybe I've gone off on one there. How no. how how else could you how else do you think we we in L and D right now should be thinking about AI? Well, let's focus on those two words, content recommendations, for a minute, because that's a very good question. And of course, people, I think, I think the mistake was made a couple of years ago, and loads of grant money and smart grants went in. There's lots of companies tried it because L and D are obsessed by. Uh, you know, all my life I've heard it. We're, we're, I'm sorry, we've got to wait six months. We're building a competency framework, and you go <laughs> like that's trying to map. The, you know, you're, not, you're just never going to get there. It's far too complex no. a task. There's not, you don't have the skills and tools to do it unless you're really smart and using AI, in fact. So I think competency framework, skill framework, so people get into this mode, it's going to predict the skills needs. This is all mm. built on top of this bollocks around the uh, 21st century skills. You know, they're not skills at all. They're abstract nouns, you know, like resilience yeah. or curiosity or, you know, they all begin with C. This is the curious thing. <laughs> if only the world, the real world were that alliterative. Ellen are obsessed by words beginning with C, I think. So that was always going to, in a sense, be doomed to succeed. You know, like they'll, they'll hear mm. off and do all this stuff, but it's far too big, I think, to chunk off. Remember, AI is good at precision mm. tasks. They want it to be, uh, you know, a slave to this rather grandiose and utopian vision, I think. That's mistake number one. And I think those systems simply don't work. That's not to say it's a, it's a bad thing to try, though. I think on a limited scope basis, you could do good things there in a very limited mm -hmm. domain or area, like one area of manufacturing or whatever, or medicine or healthcare. But that's not really what recommendation engines actually should be used for. Let's come to some precision tasks. And I'll give you several examples where it is incredibly powerful around content. I have no problem mm. with content. You know, I've got, I've, I've got this room and another library upstairs full of books. This is content. People always say yeah. content is dead. What, you're going to burn all your books? <laughs> you know, like, what do you mean <laughs> content's dead? Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. You don't watch Netflix. That's content, guys. You know, 
but let, let's let's narrow down on learning content for a minute because the one thing that AI is already having great success in is on adaptive learning. So I helped build one of those systems, invested heavily in it, brought the money to that company. It's just been bought by Cambridge University. Universities never buy tech platforms. Why did they buy this platform? Because it went through four years of trials in American universities. And what it was, was breaking your content, still content, down into individual components in math, stats, American history, biology, did it across the curriculum. Once you've broken your content down, you can then allow users to vector through that content in different ways. So if you have poor prerequisite knowledge, it would say, hold on, you need to cover this and this before you move on to that. Because in maths, it just doesn't work. You just suffer from catastrophic failure. So on the side of this thing, you've got this big network of knowledge and content, uh, you know, all sorts of media types and interesting stuff worked examples, really good stuff. On the side, you have this, a bit like the sat-nav in your car. And of course, if you're in Hayward's Heath, I'm in Brighton at the moment, if I drove to you and made a mistake, you know, ended up in Burgess Hill or whatever, my sat-nav would get me back on the road and I'd quickly, you know, zip up the, the M23 and get, I'd get to you uh, in, uh, in Hayward's Heath. But the same was happening in these systems, these incredibly sophisticated systems that have harvested uh, data from all the people who have ever taken that course before and other courses, aggregated mm. data and data about you, David, as an individual. And it would focus that all on that one point where you get stuck and yeah. say, how can I help you get beyond this? Uh, because teachers have taught maths, you, can, you can't do that with 30 people you get in a room. You just can't. You cannot cognitively diagnose where they're all going wrong. So mm. I think adaptive learning is one area where there has already been success and will continue to be success. I think another big area is to, away from the, you know, the three-day classroom course, which is then ported over online. Uh, I saw Julian Stodd give a brilliant uh, talk about a little one-hour compliance course he had this morning set in a spaceship with lots of cartoons of Buck Rogers. And you go, God, I remember that back in the 1980s. People are still <laughs> doing that crap, you know? Yeah. Uh, and they call it learning experience design. I have lots of empathy with people. They're like spaceships. No. <laughs> uh, I think what, what we have now is the other end of the spectrum, more towards informal learning. The learning experience platforms are doing some interesting things about, you know, the Bob Mosher's moment in need stuff, mm. delivering stuff when you need it in a workflow learning. This is content still in a way, just because it's a little steps or checklist or something, doesn't mean to say it's not content or FAQs or whatever. Mm whatever. And then there's also the performance support people. And I'm really interested in that because going back to Gloria Geary, who I knew way back in the 1990s, uh, that was 30 years ago. It's only now that we're beginning to see smart technology because of AI that will allow mm. us to do performance support in a very smart way. And this is yeah. this is what I call smart content. Content isn't content. Content should be defined by how you use it. It's not what the, mm. it is in itself. It's always defined by use in the same way that words in a dictionary are not actually the meaning of the words. The words only get into the dictionary because people in the real world use them. And then it goes into the dictionary. <laughs> you see what I mean? Meaning is use. Content is use. And people use content on, uh, you know, they search for YouTube, they search on Google, they look up social media. They, they're all constantly, uh, you know, harvesting and cannibalizing stuff which they don't see as content, but is. It's always content. Mm. You know, if you ask another person something, give you an answer, it's content. But we need yeah. to move down that spectrum away from these big dollops of 
stuff, you know, cartoony e-learning, which has got a few multiple choice questions in it, and just tons of stuff that just overloads us. It's not the Mm. way people learn. People learn more informally, incidentally, on the move, driven by their own needs, curiosity, all sorts of things. Mm. And I think we really, there are lots of good people in L&D now looking at that. And then there's a big lump over here who just solidly want to deliver courses in what Charles Jennings called the conspiracy of convenience, you know? Mm. Uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, managers want a course. That's because that's what they think L&D does. That's all they think yeah. about. I want, I need a course. Okay, we'll give you a course. Give me a budget. You make the mm. course three, four, five, six months later, you give them the course. Managers are happy. They've got a course. L&D's happy. They've got some budget, been kept in employment. Users, you know, poor learners, being carpet bombed by this stuff, you know, carpet yeah. bombed by compliance courses, uh, uh, diversity equality courses, therapeutics stuff, leadership, it's carpet bombing all the time. Mm. They give a little tick. Well, I've been through something. I assume these people know what they're doing. <laughs> mm. Everybody's happy, but nobody's learned a damn thing. And we haven't really had any impact on the organization. And that's where I think we're going badly wrong. We're still plowing the old furrow of mm. course delivery. Well, that, that's what leads me on to my, my next question then, because one of the biggest problems I see in learning and development is not knowing what we need to work yeah. on. This, this is why platforms sell 10 million pieces of content because there's no analysis been done and you send 10 million bits of content because if you've only got 50,000 people, then there must be something for everyone, right? But if you haven't done the analysis, then uh, and there's there's no context with any any of that content, then you sell it like you sell, okay, I won't won't name the brand, but there is a current big e-learning or online learning content provider that sells consumption as competence. So you will be upskilled when you do this. Now, surely we all know that's not true now, right? So so, so if we if we go on the premise that, that the, uh, the Learning and Development podcast listener knows that by consuming content, you haven't learned something, therefore you have not been upskilled. The problem that, that, that we face a lot of the time is that we haven't done enough analysis. We don't know what to work on. So we don't know where to point our, uh, our attention, let alone our effort and our, our resources to actually solve the problems of, uh, of the people that, that we are in organizations to, uh, to help. So how do you see AI helping us with that, with the analysis and diagnosis part? No, a very good question. Uh, I think I will, I will name that and have no problem because I think the Skillsoft <laughs> sausage machine is completely out of control, but it's worse than a sausage machine because it bought all the other sausage machines and then closed them yeah. down, went into voluntary bankruptcy. I mean, this is, this is verge. I mean, if people have values in their company, then they shouldn't be using Skillsoft, I would say. Mm. <laughs> a hideous uh, way to approach any market in a way, but it's ca- causing havoc because of this, you know, you're absolutely right. Consumption is all the measuring engagement by just people clicking through this stuff. As Julian said in his beautiful uh, little video this morning, I clicked through the hour in about 10 minutes, really, you know, I didn't have any control <laughs> over time and then answered the questions at the end, but didn't learn a damn thing. Uh, but coming back to this, the, you know, the, the sausage machine itself, and how we're going to tackle this problem going off into the future. I think analysis is so important. And I was upfront, the decision as to whether you're going to be doing any training at all is almost a given rather than a sub a decision. Mm. Now, I've been working on a project for a couple of years now called the Blender, and this goes way back to my epic days where we built this thing in a spreadsheet in Excel where you input how many learners have you got? 
are they working at home? You know, what's the gender mix, educational background, all that stuff, good data about learners. But what's the learning? What, what are they actually going to be expected to do in terms of performance here? Because you, have, you need some sort of taxonomy of that, you know? There's a big difference between riding a bike and learning a piece of theoretical physics, you know? Uh, and then, of course, you also have things like, how effective is this stuff going to be in terms of pedagogy? The models, let's call them, like transfer. Will this stuff actually transfer or not? And then you need to decide on your app solution pops out the other end. Now, the idea that you can do this in a piece of paper is ridiculous because I can give you 150 different types of de uh, delivery methods, online and offline. Hardly anybody knows them all or can keep them all in their head to make the decision. It's, and the pedagogic models are quite complicated. So we built a thing called the Blender for a European company. This is, this is an AI company that, that I, I run currently. And it takes all these variables, and then in the middle, it has these clever, very clever AI maths that also builds in the pedagogic models, especially around transfer. There are about 11, 12 criteria for good transfer from the literature. And we took that and applied it so that it spits out an optimal blended solution. But sometimes that solution is not, not to do a training course at all. <laughs> because the, uh, we absolutely know that all this more recent learning in the workflow, performance support stuff, is actually sometimes far more powerful, takes less time to competence, saves you a pile of money, and actually is what users want. So I think the, this is a really brilliant question because we haven't focused on analysis, the upfront analysis portion of all this, but this has to be, has to start being mathematically more sophisticated and taken more seriously. There are good people like mm. Guy Wallace and all sorts of people who do this well. And we know the theory and how you do it. You've got Richard Clark at University of South Carolina, spent a lifetime on critical task analysis. And what yeah. these guys tell you all the time is, gather the data and then make your decision. The decision mm. might be no training whatsoever because people might not have to remember things. It's only if you need to really have some sort of cognitive change that you need the more intense approach to training. And even then, a, a course is not necessarily the best solution. Yeah. So I think if we take upfront analysis more seriously using smart AI, we will get rid of the sausage. The, these things would disappear. A lot of this stuff would just disappear because yeah. the recommendation yeah. would be, don't do that, do this. And this is often mm. a less is more approach, a more sophisticated, personalized approach. Mm. And uh, uh, and let, let's let's continue down the line of killing the sausage machine um, because there you know there, there's AI in the content creation as well. I mean, there's, there's stuff that already exists. There's uh, AI writers um, that you know I've read stuff about their their writing articles, uh, which is challenging journalism. But that it doesn't take too much of a, a leap to see that that they could be creating resources and courses. Um, there is, um, you have to um, excuse my pronunciation, I don't, don't know if it's Dali or Dali, yeah. uh, that creates images from text as well. So how do you uh, assess the potential of these and others to positively impact the aims of our profession? Well, that's right. This is a new area that very few people are aware of even, but it, and it will take time. But what's called transformers, AI models, and there are many of them. Dali, you've mentioned, uh, the big one that got all the attention was GPT-2 and 3, uh, but there are others uh, as well. Now, we use these all, all the time. This is our daily bread now in terms of applying AI and learning. And it breaks, I'll break it down in a number of little components because, again, it's not one thing, it's lots of things. First of all, these transformers are pretty good at summarizing and they will take, you know, Romeo and Juliet and summarize it into a paragraph. And that paragraph will mm. be really good. I mean, you know, it's... it's 
it's quite a good... It, I mean, you know, if you're trying to get to grips with a Shakespeare play, it's what you need to get that, you know, that pure, what is the plot in it? What is the story here yeah. if you're going to be studying it in, in, in a critical context? So summarising stuff. Now, we've been applying that in summarising notes, for example. Students take notes, okay, or summarising what the lecturer has said. Mm. Or, so we have a big project where we're doing that on note-taking. But we also uh, have been looking at summarization of content in L&D. So every training department receives these big PDFs, 10, 12,000 words, and you have to turn it into a training course. And what they do, of course, is take too much of it and turn it into training. But if you use a summarizer, you can say, I want 100 words, 1,000 words, 10,000, whatever, and it will give you a summarized version. There are two forms of this, extractive and abstractive, but that, that's more mathematical. Let's not get too deep on that one. But summarizing is a really important thing now. And we have, we use lots of these models now because they're all slightly different and suitable for different pur purposes. You can also, of course, create text. So in addition to summarizing text, you can create text. So people are using this in marketing all the time now. So you can just say, uh, th these systems work by prompt. So you can say, you know, today we are very excited to announce. And then the, the actual uh, summarizer, the transformer, will write a piece of marketing copy that will be very crisp, you know, to, and it will, it will carry on predicting the word, next word you need. So today we're very excited to announce, and then it will say a, a new feature called the sneak peek, and it, it will be really crisp and nicely written because you've determined the style in which it's going to be written. Uh, uh, you can create questions. Uh, create answers to questions, uh, all that time that people have spent creating questions and answers to questions in online learning, but you can do it. And we're even getting to the level where the creative text is allowing students to cheat in exams. So there's a famous guy in Turkey who got his MBA by submitting all of his case studies and essays from a transformer. It was, in fact, GPT-3. He got a B in everything. Doesn't really matter. He gave, nobody worries about that. He got the MBA because it, it, it has this vast corpus of every case study. It's gone and it's got all the text on the web. And of course, it's when you ask it for a case study applying to this business thing, it will find it for you and it will summarize it for you in new, fresh text. So it escapes mm. plagiarism. So we have the creation of text. The you know the people writing blogs now, which I think is ridiculous, using GPT three. Uh, you can also create graphic. You mentioned DALI, so you can create graphics from text now. So the first, the yeah. very famous example that came from DALI originally was an astronaut riding a horse in a photorealistic style, and it produces this beautiful image of an astronaut in a full spacesuit on the back of a, a white horse riding through space with stars behind it. Now, that is an astonishing challenge in AI, which has now been solved. You can create graphics mm. from text. Not only can you create the graphics from the text, you can say, I want a duck in the corner, and it'll put a duck in the corner, and all the lighting and the photograph will, or the image will adjust to that. You can say, I want the girl with the golden earring picture, you know, that beautiful Dutch Vermeer paint. You say, I want that in loads of different styles, pop style, black, and it will produce an image freshly minted, mm -hmm. uh, and it will be good. I mean, these images are good. You, just, you can look all these things up on the web. I myself use it all the time. So... As, as, as a joke, as I was testing it to its limits. So I have a schnauzer dog, yeah. and I show this image of it. I just typed in schnauzer on a trampoline, and it gave me nine images of a schnauzer jumping and doing somersaults on a trampoline. And these are photorealistic yeah. images, as if I had taken mm. a photograph. So we're now getting to the level where we have summarization, content creation, 
a, a image creation, video creation will come shortly. Code creation is already happening. You have a thing called GitHub Go, Copilot that actually hmm. writes code for you as you're doing it and learning. Uh, a beautiful sort of simula code simulator environment. Uh, of course, we also have <laughs> going on here, but we have speech to text, text to speech. That's already for for that's been going on for the last decade, twenty years, really solving problems for people with accessibility problems. Pure hmm. AI. So when people say AI's had no effect on L and D, well, speak to people who have a, a visual or hearing impairment problems. They've been using it for a long time. But yeah. the big one for me is also something I've been heavily involved in for the last three or four years. That's the creation of of content. And not the sort of e-learning content we're talking about. I mean, less is more crisp content. And what you do is you just send us a, a PDF or a video uh, or a PowerPoint, and we use AI to summarize it, shoo, telescope it down, and then we press a button and it produces some e-learning content. But not the you know, no multiple choice questions. <laughs> it actually produces a open input where you're actually typing stuff in. You're making the effort cognitively to learn this stuff. Yeah. And we even have complete open input where AI is used to semantically interpret the answer. So if I ask you, most teachers ask, you know, if you're teaching, you ask a question and then the person verbally gives you a full sentence or a paragraph type reply. We don't do mm -hmm. that in e-learning. We give them multiple choice questions where the answer's already yeah. on the screen. People are, it's just an exercise in recognition. What we should be doing is open input and then using semantic analysis, which we have written ourselves, to do that interpretation of the answer. So there's all sorts yeah. of species of things happening on the content front here. And um, anybody listening to this, uh, uh, Donald, who is not uh, perhaps as... Uh, uh, as fluent in understanding AI, may right now be feeling anxious about um, will, be there, will there be any parts of what we recognise now as, a L, as an L and D role that won't be taken away? You could, because you know, as you as you said there, that if uh, if it's helping with analysis, uh, if it's doing uh, the content creation, if it's um, uh, taking some of the role, if not all of the role of the instructional designer, uh, if it's helping to summarise content into. Um, uh, uh, chunks that uh, that the the employee themselves uh, recognises. If it's adaptive to to not only their role uh, uh, but their maturity within the role and what they're actually doing, then it can serve them what they actually need, what rather than what's being uh, delivered. There's 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 a great deal of uh, of, of of anxiety that could be um, uh, being experienced by by people who. Uh, for this, but perhaps you know, going back to my my initial point, may not just be fluent in this, but value what they have been experienced and uh, and skilled and uh, and trained in for all of this time um my own view of that is that uh, that that when we reduce the administration we increase our value but i wonder um what what your thoughts are on that yeah well there's always a tension and a sense of anxiety about new technology that's been true it was true of writing when it came out plato mm. criticized writing as you know, reducing our ability to remember things. That's 2,000 years ago. Radio, rock and roll, you know, television. The printing phone, press, as you said. The smartphone, the internet, email. Mm. I lived through some of these things. People hated it. It's always going to be the end of civilization as we know it until it was normalized yeah. and they all start using it, of course. Uh, you know, mm. I remember when social media came out, people were vicious about Twitter. They all have a Twitter account now, you know, <laughs> which they oddly used to criticize technology, even though it's mediated by AI. They're completely unaware of the technology they're using themselves. But 
it's a fair point. This I think people should be worried because in my lifetime, I mean, I, when I first started in this industry, training was ninety nine percent stand up training, and you know, you go off to a hotel or country house or something. You do a six six weeks induction course in the classroom. That's all gone now. The classroom is dead. Let's be honest. Mm. COVID actually killed it. Uh, in the end, eighty uh, percent of that stuff is just not coming back, and the companies have disappeared. Now the the so it's all we've always gone through these transformations. Uh, you know, most things have gone online, and quite rightly so, I think. Or we, uh, but we have to recognise that technology is always ahead of the sociology, which is and also quite good at being ahead, including pedagogy. I, I strongly feel that our professional. We talk about our professional learning game is a big game, including teachers and education and so on. But in L&D, we can plough this furrow of creating courses ad infinitum and become ever less relevant <laughs> or annoying <laughs> to, to a lot of people. As I said, getting carpet bombed by these endless, uh, as Julian showed, the endless, really quite awful times, uh, compliance courses, all cartoons galore, mm. even worse, gamifying people to death, you know, yeah. the Disneyfication of learning. I watched, I watched a, 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 on the Disney Channel last night, I think called Pistols, which is about the sex pistols. Yeah. It was one of the saddest experiences of my life. Something that I lived through was a brilliant piece of working class culture reduced to a shitty little rom-com by Disney. Mm -hmm. You know, the Disneyfication of content. We've got to be really careful about this. You know, we're adults. We should not be chasing mm -hmm. rubies around mazes and learning anything, you know? It's... Yeah. It's, I think it's gone a wee bit out of control, that one now. But, but L&D will have to adapt because the world is changing around them. The nature of work has changed. Mm. More people working at home, more people online. We've, you know, I was involved with Learning Pool for 15 years. We sold it for $200 million last year. Why did it get $200 million? Because it's moved. It's moved towards LXPs mm. and more sophisticated stuff you'll see these performance support companies come through that are a wee bit more agile, deliver personalized stuff at moments of need. This is happening as we speak. Yeah. Look at, look at how the, you know, follow the money here. It's quite clear what's happening in the market. Mm. As, you know, my, my own view of that uh, with the uh, learning games, it's because uh, vendors are trying to uh, address the engagement problem that learning tech notoriously has had that, uh, that, that um, learning and development teams spend a lot of money on something that employees don't see the value in. And so they chase engagement in order to justify the investment. So what vendors do is they create ever more engaging, in inverted commas, content to solve the engagement problem. Yeah. But, but the utility problem is never still addressed. I mean, it's really easy. I've been, I've been working in learning and development now for nigh on 25 years. For 15 years of that, I couldn't run away from my solutions because I was in-house. So, uh, so um, uh, the, what we came to, to work out was that there is only one way to gain sustained engagement in learning tech, and that's give people what they need when they need yeah. it. And that's it. <laughs> and we don't determine what they need. They determine what they need. And then we've got to listen and we've got to get as close to the point of work. It's, it's really not hard. But if I hear one more vendor say, we had to switch off the game because it was too much of a distraction. You're going, well, it wasn't learning then, was it? <laughs> well, there's a, there is a fundamental problem with the word engagement here. You know, pe people can be engaged. You can engage people really mm. easy, you know, tell jokes. I mean, I've been at hundreds of stand-up comedy events. I used to go to the Edinburgh Festival every year and see 10 at a time, you know. Mm. I can't remember a single joke. I was massively engaged, emotionally, yeah. laughing my head off, can't remember a single joke. I, I've watched 
dozens of box sets uh, over two years in COVID. Can't remember most, I can't even remember half the box sets I have actually watched, to be honest. Yeah. Because engagement isn't the key here. And you're right about gamification. Because the stuff was so dull, people had to jazz it up with this sort of Pavlovian behaviorist, the bad side of gaming, you know, this really sort of yeah. almost infantile stuff. And of course, it takes up bandwidth, it distracts. They're often not very good games. You know, I've worked in the games industry. These people take it really seriously and have big $10 million yeah. budgets. So that, it has its pros in terms of motivation, uh, repetition, you know, uh, reinforcement of learning and so on. But the downsides, people often just shove to one side and ignore that they are massively yeah. distractive. Actually, you've got to, you spend most of the time playing the game, extrinsic motivation and not actually learning and so on and so forth. Mm. So I think you're right there. I would say, however, you know, it all, it, let learners always determine what they need. This is true in what they need, but not necessarily mm. in what they're given. Learners yeah. can be quite delusional. I mean, students quite often think that taking notes, underlining them and highlighting them is the way you learn, but it isn't. Mm. It's actually massively suboptimal. You should be, in fact, you should be turning away from the page and retrieving knowledge back into your brain to see whether you've learned it or not. In fact, that act of retrieval, not underlining, not highlighting, the act of retrieval, yeah. typing stuff in, take a fresh bit of paper, write it out, generative learning, all that stuff. We know what good learning strategies are, but so often you go to university. I was in the university in uh, Dublin last week, and it was a great, these are great people, both faculty and students. But I went to their website, and it had a full page on learning styles. The people in the room didn't even know that page existed. Their own university yeah. are telling their students this old hokum, you know? Uh, yeah. But in actual practice, what are the students doing? They're on YouTube. They're on, they're on Google, they're on Wikipedia, as our faculty. <laughs> yeah, so that's right, yeah. the world is changing around the professional learning world, education and L&D, and we have to move towards that world. And you're mm. right, that means moving towards learners, type of learning, taking the tech more seriously. Mm. That's right, yeah, and less conversations about learning and more about, uh, about what people are in organisations to, uh, to actually do. There was, a, there was um, a study that was mentioned in Michelle Ocker's Learning Uncut uh, podcast um, run by the PNAS, uh, PNAS uh, and it stated that um, if you ask learners or, uh, or workers, uh, employees as I like to call them, um, what um, uh, learning methods that they value most, they generally choose passive uh, learning experiences. They overvalue passive learning oh, yeah. experiences, such as classroom training, uh, as being um, the um, uh, the most important in their working lives. And yet, when it comes to to what actually helped, of course, it's got, you know I don't have to tell you. It's the it's the more active uh, learning experiences or working experiences that uh, that they that actually work. So yeah. Uh, so yeah, you're absolutely right. You don't you don't want to be asking people how they like to learn or what they want to learn, but conversations about the work itself, what they're trying to do, and what they're not able to do uh, effectively or efficiently, uh, is a far more uh, effective way of uh, of getting to the number of things. Yeah, people people like an easy life, you know, and learners get and, yeah. and L and D give them easy options, you know. Mm. A, so, so you know, you know, if you say, "How would you like to fly across the Atlantic?" Everyone would say, first class." But that's not right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, of course, people would want. I mean, of course, people love two days off work, sitting around talking to their mates, having chats over. Of course, people love mm. that stuff. But what's the driver there? Are they turning up to really learn? Have they had really, really have that mm. curiosity? You know, in a university, for example, 
where I could walk in any other, if I would, if it was intellectual curiosity driving all these students, they would go another lecture on another sub. Oh yeah, I'm really, I don't know anything about philosophy. I'll pop into that 101 lecture over, it's just there. I can walk in, mm. nobody ever does it. Because actually what they're driven towards is the, the accreditation. That's, it. That's the truth of the matter. And the same is true in, in learning. You know, the people go in these courses, but have you ever asked them? I mean, I, I was on the boards of several large, very large public organizations. I went on the same diversity and equality courses time after time. Nobody ever said, have you been in one before, Donald? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and it was mind-numbingly dull and mm. almost irrelevant in my view, a lot of it. Uh, so I think we're playing an old game here. You're, you're, I think you're very, very true there. You've got to be careful about effortful learning that nobody learns a damn thing without making some effort or being in that state mm. where they really need something and it helps them achieve a task, which yeah, is what you were it. talking about there, David, quite rightly, that moment mm. in need stuff that Bob Mosher goes on about all the time is so important, you know, uh, but we're, we're not, we're not doing that. We're supplying them with what we think they need. They need a course on resilience. Really? Most of these people have never even used the word resilience, you know, it's something yeah, or courageous conversations, <laughs> Donald. We're, what, we're trying to, what we're trying to do is we're trying to redefine their job in the absence of knowing what it is. So, well, yeah, you're right. So you need resilience. Uh, we're going to make all managers coaches and you're going to have courageous conversations. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't reflect what they actually do uh, or they, what, what, they're, what they're actually struggling with, That's but right. these catch-all uh, um, topics. And, and it's um, become more and more yeah. abstract. So you get these training courses on the values of the organisation. Organizations mm. don't have values. They have L and D and HR departments who write platitudes out and put it on the website. Nobody ever remembers what they are. <laughs> you can't ask anybody in any organization to name them. You can't name them because they're simple abstract words. And of course, they're there to mm. protect. They're really marketing, not training. They're there to protect the organization from the external threat, sometimes from their own employees. Uh, L&D yeah. become that. So I think that whole, you know, people have values and organizations are full of people with different sort of values. I think we need to respect that type of diversity rather than telling everybody to, to lock into the same step on these abstract values integrity, as if nobody believes that these are good things anyway, you know, is subject to the, subject them to the negativity test. Supposing you had the opposite there, would it still be a value? Of course, people would say, you wouldn't have be nice to customers as a value. Well, not being nice to customers, you know, like what? <laughs> what are you telling me here? Of course we know this. Actually, what you should be doing is giving people good training on the competence around that. And some organizations do that superbly well, but they focus on the competence, not the abstract stuff. We've gone very mm. abstract with values. The worst is unconscious bias, you know? I mean, I was astonished when I saw that phrase pop up in L&D. What, what gives you the right, anybody in L&D, to turn around to me and say, you're going to probe my unconscious? Do you have any skills mm. in this area? Of course you don't. Do you know anything about the IAT test and the fact that the, the people who actually invented the test said, don't use it, it's far too ineffective? Do you know any of that? Of course they don't. All they're doing is saying, we need mm. a course. Let's do this. Everybody else is doing it. We have to do it as well. It's complete groupthink. Yeah. It's a waste of time and money, as all the subsequent studies are showing. And yet we've, mm -hmm. we, we constantly thunder down these bowling alleys with these big bowling balls, hammering into the poor learners at the end of the bowling alley without any consideration about whether the stuff actually works or not. Mm. 
And that's no other area in business does this, you know. Marketing, they sort of have to throw a lot of stuff out there. They know that some of the stuff doesn't work, but it's the name of the game. But you wouldn't mm -hmm. go to the legal or finance department and get this sort of stuff, you know, no. where methods that are unvalidated or sometimes even the evidence is there that they don't work. These massive diversity yeah. training courses don't work. The, the research is mm -hmm. really clear. A big, big study, 620 corporates, you know, longitudinal studies. And rather than look at the data and then just stop it, because these are serious problems, diversity, race, all these things are really massive social and workplace problems, but the courses are not the solution. The solutions are changes in recruitment, competence at a lower, another mm -hmm. level, changing processes, you know, drop Myers-Briggs for a start, you know. There are all sorts yeah. of things you can do in adjustments on management and policy and process and recruitment and promotion uh, and appraisals and so on that we can do, but we dump all that. We don't do much there and throw a course at them. Mm. There's my bowling ball analogy. It was a bit too strong there, maybe. <laughs> um, that was freshly. I've never used that one before. That was freshly minted. <laughs> um, the the listener as well as ourselves may uh, may need a reminder that uh, that that we're talking about AI and uh, and as we um, uh, um, come to the end of the uh, the conversation, Donald, uh, I'd love to ask you um, what do you think the future of AI and its impact on our lives and work is. Well, it's, I mean, it's the old adage that, you know, you sort of overestimate it in the, in the long, in the short term and underestimate it in the yeah. long term. You know, the, this is going to, this already has had immense impact on us as a species, AI. And the clearest example I've already given is Google, which is now the, probably the a sort of primary pedagogy in learning. You know, it's what we turn to. But most people just turn to that several times a day because they need to, need to find stuff and learn stuff. So it, it has had a social media, you know, like Netflix stuff. All these interfaces are being radically changed. Our relationship with technology is being radically changed. We haven't mentioned this. Mm. You know, I have in my room uh, uh, an A-L-E-X-A. -E I have one in every single room, in fact, in my house. Mm. And I use it just casually. The first thing I do in the morning is wake up and say, Alexa, give me the news, mm. you know, and she gives me the news. And that's... The, the, uh, uh, then go on and have all my timers set uh, for this podcast. You know, I have an alarm just three minutes before it starts and so on and so forth. Uh, I have my Roomba, I have my television, all my music linked up mm -hmm. uh, to this stuff. So it's it's already, we're living within the world of AI because the internet itself is being AI driven. Almost everything you do online is mediated by AI. And quite rightly so, because it needs to be automated. Mm -hmm. We want our lives to be easier so we can do other fruitful things. You know, all my lights, when I walk out this room of an evening, eh, I have five lights, and I used to have to go around and click them all off, you know, finding that annoying, yeah. is it a button on the stem or is it down here <laughs> near the floor? <laughs> Every night. And now I just, as I walk out, I go, Alexa, lights off. And as I walk out the room, it's perfectly timed so that when I close the door, it just mm. dims down behind me. It's a beautiful effect. Yeah. That makes my life easier. <laughs> you know, over years, that's a huge amount of yeah. wasted time I had. Same with my Roomba, picking up dust and so on and so mm. forth. So the impact will be immense because it's a piece of, this is the way all technology is going. Technology, it's smart content, smart analysis, smart platforms. It's not that we had dumb stuff before, we just had the stuff that the technology was capable of doing. There's nothing wrong with an LMS. You need enterprise-wide 
wide software, there's security problems, bring consistency. Very good arguments for enterprise-wide software. I have no problem with that at all. But now we have new software mm. that can personalize, do these wonderful things in learning. Why stick to the old technology? I mean, the technology we're using is really right out the late 1990s, early 2000s, mm. when we had the Cambrian explosion in LMSs. It's still the same names, in fact. Yeah. Sab has some total success factors. You know, they're, they're, These are old bits of technology. And they're okay. They do a good job mm. on one area. But the world has moved on. It's not that the world's moved on. The technology has moved on to such a degree that it really can do very smart things in learning that we couldn't do before. Yeah. And we're duty bound, I think, to move with it mm. or towards it. Yeah. Um, and so, um, Donald, if the listener wishes to learn more about how AI could improve their L&D practice, how do you advise they start? Well, you can buy my book. <laughs> 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 so, AI for learning. Yep. And that's on Amazon, mediated by AI. <laughs> uh, I, th I think beyond that, I mean, it is just not difficult now. Mm. I mean, I've blogged loads about AI, so you can just go to my blog, you know, it's a good Donald Clark blog. Donald, nobody calls a kid Donald these days <laughs> after Trump, so you can find my name easily on the internet. And I've written a lot about this. You know, I spent four years, you know, and these are real projects and real large organizations, mm. I'm, you know, creating content, using AI techniques, musing on the subject. We haven't talked about assessment, another big area and so on. Uh, so that, that's one area you can go to. But generally, there are some good introductory books if you're interested. It depends what question you're asking. If you're saying, well, what is AI? There are some really wonderful little introductory books. Just walk into Watson's, go on Amazon's and you'll find them, you know. But keep, it depends what depth you want there. But I wouldn't worry about getting to grips with the technology. You're, you should be far, you know, this notion that you go around learning technologies, criticizing people because they're not, they don't have any machine learning algorithms is ridiculous mm. because actually most AI you're buying on tap from Hugging Face or, a, or, a, or you're using OpenAI or increasingly Facebook, Google, and all these other people. Almost that's, they're supplying this stuff mm. at a very low volume because it's all SaaS delivered. It's all metered. So I think you can uh, simply type in AI and learning, and and if you're wise in your search in Google, you will find answers to your questions. But follow your curiosity. Uh, you know, there's there are plenty of case studies out there on the Wildfire site, for example. You know, that, uh, of of things we've done in terms of the creation of content. Uh, I, I don't think there's a, a lack of information out there. Mm. I think there's a anti-intellectualism and a sort of Let's kill it before it starts, mob. You know, like yeah. we, you know, like the first question they ask is, is, I mean, the the questions I get about bias in the eye are normally driven by a bias in the questioner. I would I would posit, you know, mm. and I was they don't really like this stuff and they want to kill it before it starts. Nobody's really looked at the detail of the question about bias in the eye, you know, in a way that you should. There are plenty of good books on this, or you know, people say, well, isn't it just a bunch of young white kids in a back room? producing racist algorithms, you go, well, no, not really. Have you, mm. have you ever worked in IT? It's mostly Chinese and Indian kids who are, and, and believe me, they're not racist. They're trying their best. Mm. There's nobody sitting there trying to deliberately write racist AI algorithms. That, uh, you get this sort of anthropomorphism, mm. you know, this, this take, this treating it like a human being. Yeah. These brains we all have, they are, as Kahneman, who got a Nobel Prize for this, 
saying this, he got a Nobel Prize for just uncovering these intrinsic biases we all have. We're all sexist and racist, but you don't get rid of them by training in the second last page of his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which nobody ever gets to, it would seem. Uh, he says that they're uneducable. In other words, you have to change processes. Mm. He actually says in the book, here, here are the ways you do this. You don't send them on big training courses. That's the last thing you should do. And he was an expert in training. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, well, we'll put links to uh, to your book and your blog on the uh, uh, in the show notes, Donald. Um, sure. But the final part, if, uh, if people wish to connect with you, uh, how best should they do so? Oh, yeah. I mean, just uh, contact me on social media, on LinkedIn or whatever. You know, you find my or Twitter. Mm -hmm. Uh, follow me. I, you know, I'm, I respond to a lot of people in DMing and so on. I'm more than happy to speak to people, answer questions. Uh, it's donald.clark at hotmail.co.uk. If you want to send me an email, donald.clark at hotmail.co.uk. I still have an antique email, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've been around that long. Uh, another thing that you may be interested in is I wrote these two th 200 learning theorists. Mm. They were blogs originally, but they're sort of full pieces, almost academic pieces, on 200 learning theories that are all clustered. And then we did a series of podcasts on learning theory with John Helmer mm. called Great Minds in Learning. If you type Great Minds in Learning, you'll find them. There's about 12 podcasts. And people have found they've been used in universities in all sorts of contexts now. So that's another source if you're interested in some of the stuff uh, I and others have been up to. Yeah, wonderful. And we, we talk about AI quite a bit in those podcasts. Yeah, great. Uh, that comes highly recommended, certainly. And we'll put the links to those in the show notes. But Donald, as we wrap up, all's left to say is thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development Podcast. No, thank you, David. It, that was fun. <laughs> thank you. AI is the latest example of L&D needing to expect more from technology. It's no silver bullet, but it's also not confined to serving up off-the-shelf content that will miraculously lead to improved performance and a closing of skills gaps. I hope this episode has revealed to you more of the potential of AI in L&D and inspired you to explore it more for yourself. If this conversation has whet your appetite for good quality L&D chat and you'd like to get involved, you can now join the L&D Collective, of which I'm an active member. Join me and hundreds of L&D peers via the link to the L&D Collective in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn, for which you'll find links in the show notes. And goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.